Welcome to Space Flicks, a podcast where we review new movies and decide if they're worth the cost of beaming to a lonely astronaut in the far reaches of space. Because it is expensive. That's we right. Don't, we don't have a lot of space coins. No. For beaming. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time, dot, in, dot, dot, in, in Hollywood. Hollywood. <laughs> Uh, the latest movie by Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard uh, he's did. Did he say he was going to make ten movies and then he was going to be done? Is that like a thing he's famously said? Yes, quite famously, he okay. has said he's going to make ten movies. And, and this is stop. the and this is like the tenth theatrical release he's had. But Kill Bill one and two are counted as one movie in his in his uh, mind. And so. I don't think he considers death proof to be one i'm oh, not is sure that right i don't recall but either well, this way this is, is this it. he considers this to be his ninth yeah right? somehow he gets to he's arguing that this is number nine okay um so yeah the latest the latest film written and directed by quentin tarantino uh highly highly anticipated surely by a lot of people um he's a very famous director very well respected um yep and uh it stars leonardo dicaprio Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. Um, let's just uh, start from the top. So, as far as expectations, I'm guessing we're both pretty big Quentin Tarantino fans. Yeah, I don't know if it even like fan almost feels like too simple a word, right? Meaning like mm, appreciators. I, I, well, meaning it's more like I don't wouldn't say that I just I just love everything he does, mm-hmm. right? I wouldn't say that it's that simple. It's more like. I look forward to everything that he does. I may not like everything that he does, but I certainly. Um, what haven't you liked? Uh, the Hateful Eight was a tough, tough really? watch. Yeah. Really? Oh, that's so weird. We saw that together, right? I mean, I like. I thought we both really liked it. I liked it? Question uh. mark. You know what I mean? It's one of those movies that uh. it's not like I. It, it didn't give me joy, right? Mm. In the way that some of his other movies do. Um, you know what I remember about that movie probably more than anything else? What's that? The music. Yeah. I still the think s- about that score The Sergio sometimes. Leone music. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Just the da, da, da. And yeah. like the slow moving camera. Yeah. Um, anyway, great score. I feel like I'm giving the movie perhaps bonus memory points just for that. Well, I do that with The Good, The Bad, <laughs> and The Ugly for the same reason. There you go. So... Um, yeah, so, okay, so you're always looking forward to his stuff because basically I, I take that to mean, like, you don't view him as a sure thing, but you know he's very capable of doing something very incredible. I, I never feel um, disappointed by his movies. I feel challenged. Sometimes I feel repulsed. Sometimes I feel, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm never never like, well, that wasn't interesting. Yeah, right? yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, but I wouldn't say that I just like, I just think his stuff is cool, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. it it's not quite on that dimension. It's more like a in stimulation and interest. Yeah, I guess I I um we'll get into we'll get into the details of why this is more uh, with respect to this movie later in the conversation. But I um, historically have found his movies uh, like really exceptionally well made, you know, and I really admire uh, the craftsmanship. I don't know if that's the right word, sure. but I, I admire the. How, how perfectionist um, he seems to be in putting everything together. I've always uh, sort of had um, some misgivings about like the content of his movies. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I think I've actually, I think that's waned for me. I like, I sort of either I've just desensitized myself or I've kind of, 
come to understand what he's doing in a different way. Right. Um, but I don't have as many misgivings uh, about the work he does as I think I used to. And so, so I think for, for me, I was definitely just looking forward to this movie. I was like, I bet it's going to be great. I bet I'm really going to like it. Right. Right. <laughs> um, which, uh, which turned out to be true. I, I did really like it a lot. How did you, how did you feel coming out? Coming out or going in? Uh, oh, well, if I thought, I thought we were clear about mm. what you were thinking going in. But. Okay. Um, yeah. So as far as coming out, um, for some reason, I think maybe I've been trained to feel this way with the last several movies, right? Mm -hmm. I think practically every one of his movies preceding this one, um, I expected there to be scenes with like considerable amounts of tension Mm -hmm. and um, for me to sort of be like gripping the seat cushion like under me, like very nervous for what's going to happen to our characters. And I felt like the movie was a lot breezier than that for the most part yeah um and so for the most part for the most part and that was some of that really surprising to me because i feel like that's not what i expect out of a tarantino movie i expect there to be like two or three sequences at least along the way that have me like really nervous with like you know and i'm sweating and there's like high adrenaline and there weren't nearly as many instances of that type of feeling that i'm accustomed to like the basement bar in Inglorious Bastards, right? Or mm-hmm. um, the white cake scene in Django Unchained, right? Or all of Hateful Eight. <laughs> or, or, yeah, a considerable portion of Hateful Eight, right? There's just so much. Um, there's lots of scenes like that in the Kill Bill volumes, right? Like I rewatched Jackie Brown recently, and there's, mm-hmm. set, there's like the halogen lamp scene in Jackie Brown that I think to me is very high tension, right? There's definitely a scene like that in this movie, though. Yes. Right, right, we would agree. Okay. Yes. Just you you just there's one very uh memorable one. Right. And you're and what you're saying is there's normally more than one. Normally I feel like it's a feeling he wants you to have repeatedly throughout the film. And this one I felt like for the most part I was like I'm weirdly at ease for most of this movie. Yeah. Right. We listened we both listened to the director's cut on this one, right? With I him think and you Paul told Thomas me Anderson. About it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um I, I think it very much it it kind of confirms what you're saying because he was he was talking in that conversation about how he had gone through different sort of plot ideas for the movie and then eventually was like you know what i think i think these characters are strong enough that uh that i'm just gonna hang out with these characters right right which is not really the recipe for tension right um but that was a choice that he made it seems like yeah it's just very different yeah for him sure right yeah um and so i think all his movies have some of that like sure. like there's definitely a, a percentage of the runtime that's dedicated to just like hanging out with the characters because he tends to have really unique and memorable characters. Yeah. But yeah, but this movie is kind of like he cranked that up to yeah to, to how high can I can I set this hanging out with the characters portion of the of the pie right right and he set it to like ninety or something right. right. And then there's a, a little bit of plot and that's and I feel like that's just different because that's the feeling he wanted you to have as mm-hmm. opposed to like putting our characters into a pressure cooker situation and seeing what happens yeah um so it was surprising to you yes I don't know that we've even talked about how much did you like the movie uh, I think walking out of the film because it didn't do those things uh-huh I felt like less um less excited mm. than I normally do walking out of a Tarantino movie, mm. right? Um, and I was like, that was a lot 
I think the adjective that occurred to me in my, at the time was like sleepy, right? I was hmm. like, that was a little bit sleepier than I sort of imagined it was going to be. Yeah. And I felt a little bit uh, disappointed, right? right? But that was because, you know, I bought a carrot cake and was surprised it wasn't pie, right? Now, you know let me I mean? ask you this. And again, I, I kind of don't want to talk too much about this. So let's just kind of dance around it. Yeah. Because um, I don't want to spoil anything. But do you not feel that Sharon Tate and the fate awaiting her sort of um, g- gave some of the movie that feel just just through your knowledge of what actually happens to her in real well, life? Well, I sort of came to a very zen place about that very early in the film, okay. right? Because she's a character. And right. I've seen Inglorious Bastards, and I've seen Django Unchained, right, right, right? right? And so I know that he's got a tool in his toolkit that he could use, mm-hmm. right? So you, so, so it wasn't, I guess, to, uh, to try to interpret what you're saying, I felt, or to contrast it with kind of how I felt, for much of the movie, I definitely did feel this sense of dread yeah. because of what I felt was coming. Yeah. It, it did occur to me at some point in the movie, like, oh, I actually don't know what's coming because right. Tarantino uh, likes to sort of manipulate Right. Right. Um, historical fact. Right. And so, so that, that sort of eased my, uh, my mind a little bit, but, um, but I still felt some of that. So I guess I was just wondering if, uh, I would imagine for a lot of audiences, for a lot of people watching the movie, even though what you're saying is true, that there's not a lot of scenes with a lot of tension built in. Right. There's this sort of thing uh, there's this there's this historical knowledge you can come into the movie with that can sort of provide this low level tension through much yeah. of it just because and and I think it's different from Inglorious Bastards in that way because um, or or Django Unchained for that matter mm-hmm. because in those movies there's this very large historical context right. that is is sort of being subverted right. Um, but in this movie, there's a specific character that you're potentially becoming attached to. Right. Right. And you're worried about what's going to happen to her. Right. Um, so, so anyway, I think, I think uh, it's not, I don't disagree with you, but I guess it's like a little bit of a counterpoint is that I think for a lot of people that probably works the way it did for me. Right. In, in, in sort of giving you that feeling of tension almost the whole movie. I, I definitely, st- that started ratcheting up for me toward the end when s- parts of the film started being time stamped. Mm-hmm. Right, like eleven seventeen p.m. This thing happens. Yeah, it right? starts or, to get really specific. Right? Yeah. Um, but for me, the Zen wasn't that I was confident that events were going to go a certain way. It was more like I knew they were going to go one of two ways. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I was like, either it's going to be a counter. It's going to gonna be a counter historical, or it's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it's the if it's basically it sticks to the historical record. I'm going to, I know how I'm going to feel mm-hmm. or I have a strong feeling. I know how I'm going to feel. And if it doesn't, I have a strong feeling. I know how I'm going to feel. And either way it, it will be what it will be. Sure. Right. And that was sort of my, my general. I, I see, I see why you're using the word Zen. Right. <laughs> like, well, one day I will, I will die. Right. <laughs> Nothing I can do about that. So I'm not going to let it bother me. And so I, and to me it was all about just like, I knew, well, we, once we get to the spoiler section, we'll talk more about that. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've already probably said too much. Anyway, um, so I, I will say uh, it sounds like we had similar expectations going in. I was maybe a little more 
a little more confident that I was going to like the movie yeah. than you. Um, and it sounds like I also did like the movie more than you. I, I really, um, I really liked it a lot. I think, uh, probably the, the way we felt about Sharon Tate, that's her name, right? Sharon Tate. Yep. Okay. I couldn't remember if it was Shannon Tate. Um, probably the way we felt about that character has a lot to do with how we both felt coming out of the movie. Um, like just in terms of whether you did feel this sense of dread, whether there was kind of the uh, what is what is the visual like the piano, the piano string getting tightened, mm-hmm. you know, um, the whole time, or not? I definitely felt like even though the movie had an easy breezy quality to it, there was this underlying tension that was sort of building, yeah, um, mainly due to just worrying about her, uh-huh. and and you know, and I I think it's no accident, you know, that. Um, all of the scenes with her are just, especially at least in let's say the first two thirds of the movie are just showing her being happy, mm-hmm. showing her having, you know, a nice time and seeming right. to be a really nice, easygoing person. Right. And, uh, and it's like, wouldn't it be awful if something were to happen to this <laughs> lovely woman? Right. right. Um, and I feel like that really worked for me. So, but anyway, um, yeah, I came out, I, I, I liked it a lot. I don't know where it would fall on my ranking of Tarantino films. In fact, I don't think I've seen every Tarantino film. Like, I don't think I've seen Death Proof. Right. Um, well, but, it doesn't. Well, it might not count. So. Yeah, it might not even count. It's not even a movie. Right. Um, but uh, honestly, and I think probably I would be in the minority here, but I feel like it's up there for me. Like, it's one of my favorites. Well, and I think this is the, the second point I wanted to make was I feel like my initial reaction was one of like, well, that wasn't as exciting as what I wanted, uh-huh. right? And then, like, I just didn't stop thinking about it for several days. Oh, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And it's sort of like, that might not have been what I wanted, but I think it was better than what I wanted, mm. right? Um, because, you know, I had the same experience with, like, uh, a movie like The Master, right? Uh, where or, it just stuck, kind of got its hooks in you. Or and- There Will Be Blood, right? Uh-huh. Because, like... Those movies, I wanted like Boogie Nights, Magnolia, or even like Punch Drunk Love. I wanted sort of like a lot of energy that those right. movies had. And those Paul Thomas Anderson movies that I referenced, those latter ones, you know, uh, There Will Be Blood and The Master, it's sort of like, oh, these are a lot more contemplative and slower mm-hmm. and more subtle than those yeah. earlier films. And you realize upon, you know, when they just f- refuse to leave your brain, you're like, those might be just as good, if not better, than those mm-hmm. earlier movies. It just it depends on sort of what more, you're looking yeah, for. More layered, sort right. of more, um, more mysterious. Uh, it, it reminds me. This is quite a uh, quite a uh, a tangent, perhaps. But you know that scene in Sideways. You know the movie Sideways about yeah. wine, yeah. where he talks about Pinot Noir. Yeah. Um, you know the whole the whole argument he's making about Pinot Noir is. It's not an easy wine. Right. It takes a lot of work, mm-hmm. but the work that it requires makes it that much more rewarding. Right. Basically. Um, and he's comparing himself. I don't remember if he's explicitly or it might just be sort of like implicit in the scene. He's like really talking about himself. Sure. Right. Like you got to get to know me. Right. But when you put in the work, it's like so rewarding. Right. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I find that that's kind of um, that's kind of how I see some of those movies like the master, or I would also argue that for phantom thread. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Where, yeah, there's less of this initial thrill. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it, it's let you, you come out less sort of energized by what you've just seen, but it sticks with you yep. and you think about it more. And it's almost like the more you put in, the more you get out of it, right? right? The more time you start, you try to think about what is the, what is the filmmaker? What is the artist trying to tell me? The more, the more you dig, the more you find. Right. right. Um, I don't know. Are you saying that's how you feel about this one? Yeah. So for example, I feel like, uh, something that I've done kind of a total 180 on is there's a sequence where Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton is basically filming a television show. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a significant portion of the movie dedicated to just him filming this television show. It's like a 15 minute scene. It feels like probably even longer than that. Right. And it's, I mean, and I'm including the part of just him getting to set, you know, like getting into costume. Oh, sure, then it's like right. 30 minutes. It's yeah, a pretty yeah. long sequence of just making a TV show, right? And I feel like in the in the moment, like as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, when are we going to get back to like the action? Mm-hmm. Which in my mind was like anything related to like the Spawn family ranch and like right. the, the, sort of the trajectory of the movie getting to that. Which right? is kind of, it's, it's kind of hilarious. To, sorry to interrupt, but it's like you're watching like a movie within a movie. Right. And you're like, when are we going to get back to the movie that I'm right. watching? <laughs> right, right. I don't want to watch this movie inside the movie that I'm watching. Right. Right. And the fun- and the funny thing is, like, as I was thinking about this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like, later, I just couldn't escape how much I loved that entire sequence. Oh, yeah. Right? And so it's like, oh, it wasn't, it doesn't have like the Cracker Jack quality of like, I got to cross four names off a list like in Kill Bill, right? Right. But it just, it was such a wonderful sequence that um, revealed so much about the DiCaprio, the Rick Dalton character, Mm -hmm. right? That I was like, yeah, I would just, I would watch that whole sequence again just for itself, right? It's Um, it's a great sequence. And so that's why like, I feel like my initial reaction was like, this wasn't Kill Bill one or two. This wasn't mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction, right? And then I was like, oh, but it was actually for what it for what it was. It was very rewarding, and so that's sort of like how I've come around to it. The same way I've come around to more con- other sort of more contemplative movies. Okay, so uh, so we kind of we've we've covered the full arc. Then it's like you uh, you had sort of uh, measured expectations going in, mm-hmm. coming out a little bit maybe not disappointed, but just sort of underwhelmed, yeah. perhaps. But then give it a little time, the graph goes back up. Right. Right. You get a you get you get some um, appreciation that grows over time. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I would say similar minus the little dip in the middle. Yeah. Because I came out like being really happy with it, thinking about it more, being really you know, um, yeah, just really really pleased. Like, um, and and I do think some of it has to do with what I said earlier that I. I think I used to have some misgivings about Tarantino and and what he does. Right. And um, sort of coming through this movie, I have more or less let those go. And and so maybe that's why this is kind of up there with one of my favorites of his. Right. I will say Django Unchained is also one of my favorites. Sure. Um, And that's one that uh, I definitely had misgivings about at the time. Oh, interesting. Um, Just because, you know, uh, well, we'll get into it. (laughs) <laughs> right um later but anyway so that covers i think expectations and, and, and reactions so the next segment uh we normally do is box office and i actually have looked it up this time okay 
Um, <laughs> so it's not just our conjecture. We used to, the, the, the premise of this segment used to be like, oh, Adam, guess what the box office was. But then like the last 10 episodes we've done, I, I don't even know what the box office was. Right. So it's kind of a silly, silly setup. So but do I get to guess this time? Yeah, you can guess this time. Okay. Um, guess what? Guess two things. Guess how well you think this did relative to other Tarantino movies. Okay. Uh, and then guess what you think it made. And like in its, uh, sorry, in its opening weekend, because it's not even, it's not even out of theaters. Yet. Okay. And are, so we, are we, are we adjusting for inflation as far as like relative to other Tarantino movies? Presum- uh, you can if you want. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say that it is a top three box office Tarantino. What, what, what do you think the other two in the top three would be? I'm going to guess they are Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bill. One. Right. How wildly wrong am I? You're not wrong. I mean, you're very close. Okay. Um, okay, how much money do you think it made in its opening weekend? In its opening weekend? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. $90 million. Okay. You are way off there. Okay. So it made $41 million. In its opening opening weekend. Which is the, uh, you know, it's funny. I, from the graph I'm looking at, Mm -hmm. it is the second best opening weekend for Quentin Tarantino. But um, I think I read that it is the, it was actually his best opening weekend. Okay. Of any movie. I think the reason that this graph is throwing me off is that it's making it look like his top grossing movie ever. Uh, and this this almost certainly is his top grossing movie ever. But it look it makes it look like his biggest opening weekend was Django Unchained. Yeah. But Django Unchained opened apparently on a Tuesday. Oh, I see. So like it's cumulative gross by the first Sunday was 63 million. Okay. Um, but I think it's actual like weekend gross might have been smaller. But then you know, it's like apples to oranges because Django Unchained had already been out for a few days yeah. coming into its opening week. Right, right, so right. I think we should say Django Unchained is still his biggest. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm looking, I can show you the graph yeah. right here. Orange right there is Django Unchained. Okay. So that's so clearly his biggest. Yeah, it's it's easily his biggest hit. Kay. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is blue. So that's the second biggest Kay. that he's had. Now, your guess that Kill Bill was number three was off. Uh, Inglorious Bastards is number three. Well, you just neglected Django Unchained, basically. Yeah, I was. I, this is Inglorious Bastards. And yeah. then it, it pretty much, actually, those three are way bigger than all his others. It's Django Unchained, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Inglorious Bastards, and then yeah. Kill Bill. Big drop from there. But it's number four. Yeah. Okay, so I was I my top three no, wasn't wasn't terrible. No. Um, my I mean, obviously, I just was in the totally wrong ballpark for Django. And I should have guessed that because it was, I mean, wh- why would you think Django Unchained was his most successful movie um, f- from the box office perspective? Well, I mean, it's Jamie Foxx. Uh, I mean, is, Di- is it just simple as DiCaprio and Jamie Foxx? I think probably the premise had a lot to do with it, right? I mean, like Jamie Foxx playing a slave turned bounty hunter. Yeah. Um, who, who, sh- who like kills white slave owners. Right. That's just a crowd pleaser concept, right? Well, just, it's funny because I feel like today uh-huh. that would be met with like a boycott or something. Potentially, yeah. It's kind of right. hard to it's kind of hard to speculate as to right. how that would be received today. But um, 
it's funny. I think I underestimated the Jamie Foxx part of it because like, for example, I was listening to something about collateral, Michael Mann's collateral the other Mm -hmm. day. And that's a 2004 movie, I believe. And I didn't really grasp that that movie did as well as it did partly because it had like the biggest white star in America and Tom Cruise and the biggest black star in America. Is Jamie Foxx the biggest black star? At the time he was, it was the same year that he won an Oscar for Ray. Ah. Right. So it's like, he was a huge star that year. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, it's very simple. It's like put these two people who covered wildly different demographic audiences. Right. And just put them in the same movie. And then both of those audiences will come. Was that pre Tom Cruise Mm. being a complete nut bar? It was right before, right before the Oprah thing and all that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think you, I mean, you and I, we, I think we both really liked Collateral, right? I yes. Mean, at least I remember really liking it. I mean, it's also a good movie, it's, right? It's got to be one of the, if not the only times, Tom Cruise has played a villain. I mean, he plays villains semi-frequently. Les Grossman. <laughs> right. <laughs> he doesn't normally play villains. What are you talking about? I feel like he's played a bad person more than once. I like, mean, I guess Magnolia, he's kind of sure. a, But in Magnolia, everybody's like a he's flawed... A, he's a vampire in an Interview with the Vampire. I guess I didn't see that. Right. Okay, so maybe I have a skewed perspective. In my mind, like, Tom Cruise playing a villain is very rare. Unusual. I mean, it's unusual, but it's not unheard of. Okay. Well, back to the the, The the topic at hand. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two. uh, Yeah, his second biggest. um, But uh, it is, yeah, I mean, it's doing quite well. It looks like Django Unchained was just like a, you know, a blowout success for, for Tarantino. So. I mean, let's see. I actually, um, this makes me curious. If I, if I extend it out, what was Django Unchained's lifetime box office? Okay, 162 million, 100, almost 163 million domestic. But, okay, which is a lot. I mean, that's. It's not like. Uh, it might not have been a number like that. It was probably in the top ten biggest earning movies that summer. I would think. Django. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a number big enough to do that. Oh, here's another little interesting one, though. Uh, another another metric I have is opening weekend multiple, which is kind of a indicator of like the legs of a movie. Like, you know, if it if it opened with whatever a forty some million, how many times that will it make in its lifetime? Okay. The higher the multiple, the more like people kept coming. Yeah, to see the word movie, of mouth, right? repeat. Huge views. blockbusters tend to have pretty low multiples, like two and a half. Yeah, because. The opening weekend's like the whole thing, and then the next weekend it drops like sixty percent, and sure. then the next weekend. Um, but looking at the graph, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is clearly um, going to have the the best legs of any of his movies. Oh, interesting. Because um, already it's it's uh, opening weekend multiples three point two, mm-hmm. and uh, let's see, Django Unchained never made it quite that high. Um, yeah, it's three point two, and then and the next the next highest was Kill Bill Volume One with three point one for its lifetime. Yep, and and, and that's once upon a time in Hollywood's longer. already higher than that. So yep. it's on its way to you know like three point five or something to legendary status. I think uh, I, I my theory is I feel like Quentin Tarantino like started off as kind of an art house. He was like an indie darling, you know, like mm-hmm. like film. Film buffs really liked him, but he was never really mainstream. Right. But he's just become through sheer like uh uh like reputation and being talked about enough. Mm-hmm. He's he's like basically mainstream at this point. 
Like right. not like Spielberg levels, but like everybody knows who Quentin Tarantino is. Like right. pop culture references and everything, you know, like right. people even reference like, oh, this is like a Quentin Tarantino movie if if like things are out of order and things like that. Because Pulp Fiction was kind of right. a little bit groundbreaking in that regard, right? Um, so my my theory is that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just sort of represents like uh, him being at this point where he's basically a mainstream big director and, and pe- even people who aren't really aware or familiar with his body of work still will hear like, Oh, it's the new Quentin Tarantino movie. And they'll be like, I guess I think I should see that maybe, right. you know? Well, isn't it possibly sim- even simpler than that? Maybe. Meaning I'm just going to like list off his lead actors from like sure. Pulp Fiction forward. You've got like, John Travolta and Uma Thurman, Uma Thurman, mm-hmm. Uma Thurman, or Pam Greer, Uma Thurman, Uma Thurman, right? Mm-hmm. Then you've got Brad Pitt, right? And Christoph Waltz, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got Jamie Foxx and Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio. And Christoph Waltz. And Christoph Waltz. And then you've got like, Samuel L. Jackson and Walton Goggins and Bruce Dern. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. And then you've got Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. So you think it's basically just the stars? It's like, which, if I, if, like, if I didn't tell you anything about any of those movies other than just who like the marquee names are, you'd be like, oh, well, you'd pick the one with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie, right? Wouldn't that be the one that you would and, just- and the one with Jamie Foxx and right wouldn't you just pick those as like oh those are the ones that are going to do the best they have the like you make a you make a good argument adam i'm not i'm not gonna they have the hugest stars in them right yeah i mean i guess i've kind of gotten to the point where i'm i'm i just assume we live in the era where like movie stars aren't a thing anymore i think they might still be a little bit of a thing you know what i think it here i'm gonna overcomplicate things again uh by just probably overthinking this but I do feel, you know, people talk about like, oh, movie stars are like dead or whatever. Like, right. Um, but I sort of feel like it's almost the older ones can still be movie stars, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Right. Because slightly older audiences care about them, you know? Yeah. Like, like, this is not a movie for the 18 to 25 demographic, really. No. But the 30 to 45, I'm, I mean, I'm making up ranges. Nobody tracks these specific ranges but right. but like like young to middle-aged ad- adults right i think kind of are into those actors maybe sure versus you know chris pratt is like uh right i don't have has like, like failed to prove himself to be a box office uh like guaranteed right known quantity right um or jennifer lawrence same thing Right. Where like studios are like, can we just put these people in these movies and they'll definitely sell them? Not, not exactly. Right. Right. But and maybe think, Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio has still kind of are there. I don't know. I mean, but it's also. There them. have to be counterpoints, though. I mean, these actors are def- have definitely been in movies that haven't grossed. Huge. Right. But it's also them basically playing movie stars mm-hmm. in the movie. Right. right. It's not like Leonardo DiCaprio is going to go ugly and like wear a beard and have his like fingers chopped off or whatever. Right. Well, Brad like, Pitt's not a movie star in this. I know, but he's kind of a movie star. You know <laughs> what I mean? He's like, he gets to walk around and be pretty glamorous for the most part. He gets just to be yeah. beautiful Brad Pitt. Right. I did, I did think it was funny in the uh, Back to the Director's Cut um, interview. 
where Quentin Tarantino was saying that when he was first talking to Brad Pitt about taking the role, he's yeah. like, I just, I think, I think you might be too good looking for this role, you know? Like, he's just a stunt man. He's not supposed to be like A list movie star handsome. And Brad Pitt was like, you know, like, I see where you're coming from, but, you know, <laughs> anyway. And, uh, but that, like, now he's, he, you know, now that the movie's made, Tarantino was like, now I, now to me, it just makes perfect sense that Cliff Booth would be like, the handsomest guy in Hollywood. <laughs> and it's just, and it's like, you know, it's fictional world. I just made right. this up. But in this world, a Hollywood's like a disgraced stuntman mm-hmm. is just like the most attractive guy in the whole industry. Right. You know? Which uh, I totally saw what he meant. Like, it was like, you watch the movie and you just go with it. Right. You know? Right. You're not like, you're not like, why is this guy this not is unbelievable? In the movies? Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> why isn't he the lead actor? Right. Um, because Leonardo DiCaprio wouldn't be a believable stuntman. <laughs> well, and it's also like, I think that adds to, I think, the appeal of someone like Cliff Booth because he's so obviously handsome and so obviously even, like, capable, right? Yeah, he's just like a Superman. That his, like, his sort of downfall and his unwillingness to kind of do anything he doesn't want to do, right, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. is just sort of like an obvious waste it's like you could have been so much more successful than you are but you really don't care about success in sort of the traditional ways i feel like he's almost like an imaginary friend you know he's like he's like this perfect supportive friend right under dicaprio's character yeah who's incredibly handsome Mm -hmm. like uh has limitless capability Mm -hmm. is basically indestructible right you know but also super supportive, not jealous, not envious. Right. Just like just wants to help his friend. Right. It's almost like, I mean, the, the movie does nothing to suggest this, but I'm, I'm just sort of thinking out loud that like it would almost be consistent with him just being completely a figment of Leonardo DiCaprio's imagination. Right. Because right. of how just perfect he is. Right. As a buddy. Yeah. You know? I think there's something. He's about- like, let's watch your TV show together. <laughs> yeah. There's something about the Cliff Booth character that loves not trying hard. You know what I mean? Like he loves just sort of like lazing from moment to moment mm-hmm. and not really having to put too much work in and being the stunt man of Rick Dalton sort of lets him live that life. You know, yeah. um, we'll get, uh, remind me that, that reminds me of something we could get to where there's a moment in the movie that I feel like could have gone in a very different direction based on that. Um, what you just said. Okay. Um, but let's go ahead to the next part. What's the next part? Okay. Themes. So I think, uh, I mean, I feel like to me, the main theme of this movie, um, is relates to Leonardo DiCaprio. He's, I mean, I would call him the main character. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, being an artist or being, being someone who's getting a little bit older and maybe past your prime or your career maybe has peaked Mm -hmm. and kind of making peace with that or, or just sort of reckoning with that to me, that seems to be the main theme of the movie. Cause he's, he's like a, the, the, the movie takes place sort of after he was at the peak of his, uh, popularity, right. Yeah. Where he was in this show. What was it called? Uh, bounty law, bounty law. Right. Yeah. Um, and he was in a bunch of different movies and stuff, but now he's at the point, the movie actually opens one of the first scenes, right. Is him talking to Al Pacino. Yeah who's a producer who yeah. wants to get him into like Italian spaghetti Westerns. But yep. um, 
but but they have a sit down talk where he's like, you know, they're doing that thing with you. It's like very predictable, right? right. They're making you the heavy. Mm-hmm. They're making you the bad guy in all these different shows. And what they're doing is people in their living rooms are seeing Rick Dalton get beat up by the next big, yeah. you know, up and coming star. Right. And um, and he sort of lays it out for him. Like you're you're sort of in the denouement of right. your career. Right. right. Um, and of course, then he comes out of that conversation and it's like Ruined. super, super upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which I, I really think is a great, like they do that a bunch of times in this movie with his character just being clearly being very sensitive. Right. Which I think is, is done really well. Yep. Um, but that feels like the main theme to me is, is like I said, reckoning with being past your prime. Yeah. What do you think? It's funny. I, to me, there's something about, I, I totally agree with that. I think that that is something that is true of the Rick Dalton character and the Cliff Booth character. And I think it's sort of, there's a very obvious counterpoint in the Sharon Tate character. Like mm-hmm. she's on the upswing, right? Yeah, yeah, and sure. she's almost this. And she's married to Roman Polanski. Also who, on the upswing, yeah, Rosemary's like, Baby. Who directed Rosemary's Baby. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that is definitely a thing a theme in the film. So it's funny. The very first word that occurred to me when you said like themes, I was like innocence. That was oh, like, interesting. That was like the very first word that occurred to me. And I could totally see that too. Yeah. And it's because, I mean, yes, all because. of the, all of the things that are happening in this movie for the most part are like, can, what will Rick's career be? And what will Cliff's career be? Mm-hmm. Right. And look at, Sharon Tate go, goes to the movies and just has a fun time at the movies, right? Mm-hmm. And the undercurrent of dread that you were describing at the beginning to me was like directly, uh, you know, juxtaposed against sort of like just the the vibe of, you know, 1960s Hollywood where it's sort of like this is, this is a very simple time, right? Yeah. We're yeah. worried about, we're worried about is am I going to get another film job? Am I going to get another TV job? Mm-hmm. Right, and these are our biggest concerns, right? And um, that to me was sort of there's this boogeyman lingering at the end of the movie. It's like this will all of this fun frivolous stuff is potentially coming to an end, yeah. right? And to me, that was sort of the thing that made me think about like just how innocent these characters all are, despite the fact that they are. Varying degrees of good and bad, but it's sort of like in sort of very simple ways. There's nothing very complex about any of that. Um, and so uh, that that was the theme that struck out, that stuck out to me. No, I think that's a great point. I think um, I think it's almost, we can probably talk a little more about it when we get into the spoilers of the movie. Like, um, but just, just how much I think the movie is also about that, um, about innocence, like you said. Because my understanding is that it also, you know, the movie also kind of hinges on a historical event that um, many people view as kind of like the end of an era, right? right, In Hollywood. Right. Um, And it is kind of the end of innocence in a way in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, No, I think that's, I think that's totally a theme. Um, It's more, it's more like, uh, I guess the one I named of, of being past your, past your prime um, and kind of having to accept that or having to deal with that. That's more kind of the, 
that's like the text of the movie yeah. and, and innocence is more the subtext. Right. Maybe. I think that's about right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so we were talking just before even hitting record about our next section of, of wanting to compare this to other films. Did you think of anything that this reminds you of? I mean, well, I mean, I feel like there's probably a rich tradition of just movies about Hollywood, right? Yes, yes. I mean, definitely some people might say, oh, this is like a love letter to Hollywood, right? Sure. Which is Which has been said of other movies like La La Land, for example. Right. Um, that to me feels like kind of a superficial similarity. Right. Um, uh, although I guess superficial is kind of a weird word to use to dismiss something when you're talking about a Tarantino film because... He's vi- he he like the fact that it takes place in Hollywood is clearly very important to him. It's, right. It's almost I would I would wager maybe one of the primary reasons he even wanted to make this movie. Right. Um. But but yeah, I don't. Th- uh, I mean, so like whether it's a movie like Hail Caesar or uh-huh. The Player or Swingers, right? I just feel like there's lots of movies about like people making movies. Yep. And like back, back lot, you know, like behind the scenes kind of stuff. Right. And, um, so I think this is definitely in that, like not even a genre, but just sort of, there's a rich tradition of movies about movies. Yep. Yep. So it's reminiscent of those. Mm-hmm. Um, also the fact that it's, you know, a day in the life mm-hmm. sort of genre. Um, there's lots of, there's a lot, I mean, it's sort of, to me, my brain connects it to a, the vast host of other movies where maybe there's not a ton of plot. You're just kind of following characters along. Right? Sure. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know, like Lady Bird, for example. Right. Um, this, uh, you know, this movie is is in the same, I would say, it, it has a kinship with a lot of other movies of that sort in that it's mostly about these characters. There's normally like one or two big things that happens. Right. Um, uh, which is definitely the case with this movie. There's certainly some big things that happen, but right. most of the movie you're just hanging out with people. Yeah, I mean, in fact, there's kind of um, like a Linklater vibe to some of yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Right? Actually, it's funny because we just saw uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, yeah. and I remember talking afterwards about how there was more plot in that yeah, that than ad- there normally <laughs> is. That movie had less of a Linklater vibe than a typical Linklater movie. Yeah, this right? one felt more Linklater. I mean, that's not really true. It felt very Tarantino, but... Um, but just like, but yeah, like shots everybody, of people driving around in cars, just yep. everybody wants stuff. some yep. waking life. I, there was definitely, like, yeah, when I was thinking the before movies, sunrise, sunset. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's just, there was an element of this movie that's just like people hanging out and talking. Right. Um, and I, that's doing it a little bit of a disservice cause it wasn't like those scenes had no point. Right. And it wasn't like they, uh, the, all the scenes of this movie, I feel like, do contribute to the various themes that we already went through, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, just the vibe of those scenes is very much, is very hangouty. Yeah. Well, there's definitely some scenes that uh, I'm not sure how much they contribute to the themes. I mean, there's lots of scenes of just people driving, <laughs> for example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I really liked, uh, well, well, we'll get to, we'll get to. Actually, this is the next segment, best part of the movie. So, like, highlights, 
All right. What so things I, did you like the most? So I think this is where we start to spoil the movie, right? Yes. Instead of so, talking high level and abstractly about the movie, we're just going to start talking about stuff. Because we're going to be talking about specific scenes, yep. specific things. <clears throat> um, so if you haven't seen the movie, just turn the episode off. Go watch Once Upon, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then come back. Yeah. Yep. Easy. Uh, okay. What was your favorite? Do you have a favorite part? I mean, I feel like, I don't know that it was the part I enjoyed the most. I think we could probably talk a lot about just enjoyable moments in the movie. Um, yeah, like I was just going to say the scene where Cliff goes back to his trailer. Yeah. And is like feeding his dog. Yeah. And I Wonderful. Just, like that, that, that to me was very much just a hangout with Cliff. Right. Uh, there might have been some like underlying meaning to it or whatever. Well, it also but establishes his relationship with the dog and what how well true. trained the dog is. Which is which is more of a plot thing. Which is actually a, very important later in the movie. Thing. Right. Yeah. Um but uh but yeah, it was just it was just quite I don't know, just, you know, Quentin Tarantino has a way of just filming a thing that's feed filming a guy uh eating mac and cheese and mm-hmm. feeding his dog mm-hmm. in a way that is very compelling to watch. Right. Just like the sound and the slowness of the dog food coming out of the can. Right. Mm-hmm. Just like really, really well, <laughs> What's well done. What's the brand of dog food? It's like Hungry Wolf or something. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. There's something very, yeah, like. Uh, I, like I assume he just made that up. Savage about it. Right. Although I yeah. like that. You, you never know. It might have been like a brand back then and it was very, you know. Sure. I feel like Tarantino just always makes up brands. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, okay, but sorry, I interrupted. You were gonna name a okay. Scene so you liked. The, the scene that really, a scene that really stuck with me and just struck me as very memorable was the Spawn Ranch sequence, sure, sure. which is right. the scene we were alluding to earlier that has a lot of tension. Yes, that yes, that one. It's funny. I actually presumed you meant a different scene, but oh, yeah, okay. but that was the one scene where I felt like I was like, okay, they're really trying to like make me feel some feelings here, mm-hmm. like that make me a little bit nervous, right? Um, what was the guy's name? George. George Spawn. Yeah. Uh, I just want to go say hi to my friend George. <laughs> right. And just um, because you know, to your point earlier, you know what the people staying on this ranch are capable of. Uh, you know, for the listener, this is obviously the, the early, Manson family. Ranch. This is the Manson family ranch. Um, you know that this is a group of people who will eventually go on to become more violent, right? And so... Yeah. Um, you but just, I think even if you didn't know that, the scene, they're just really weird. It's Something just is shot really in up. a way... It, it's shot in a way to make them feel very culty. Um, it's shot in a way to make you feel like Brad Pitt's character is, um, you know, wildly outnumbered and surrounded, mm-hmm. right, by hostility, right? And he is the only one who wants to go into that house and everybody else is trying desperately to keep him out. Right. And so, um, there was something very, uh, Fincher esque like to me about that sequence. Right. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in the framing or the way the camera was moving, but just, I'm thinking about, for example, like the sequence in Zodiac where, um, uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal character goes down into the basement of the film projectionist house and mm-hmm. there's this feeling once he's like deep in the basement of this house that he might be in the presence of a murderer, uh-huh. right? Yeah, yeah. And he just feels like a panic attack coming on and he just tries desperately to get out and it just he has to climb like up the stairs and like walk through the house and go out the door and it just, there's this terror that 
Mm-hmm. He's trapped in this terrible situation, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's totally a paranoid feeling you realize after that movie, after that scene concludes, like that projectionist has nothing to do with anything. It's mm-hmm. just his own paranoia really sort of right. speaking to him. But I sort of had the same feeling. In fact, I don't know if you're watching Mindhunter at all right no. now, but there's like the opening shot of Mindhunter season two. The opening sequence of Mindhunter season two is a very similar feeling mm-hmm. of a woman entering a house and just approaching this sort of heart of darkness in the house that she's sort of absolutely attracted to and simultaneously repulsed by, mm-hmm. right? But she can't resist but keep going toward it. And you, yeah. the viewer, are terrified for her because what is she going to find on the other side of this door, right? right. And so that's sort of how I felt about um, Cliff Booth, like just relentlessly approaching the door of George Spahn. It's yeah. sort of like, what is he going to find? And the filmmaking very much supports that emotion, right? Yeah, for sure. Um and so that to me was like a really uh, unforgettable sequence. Um, both, and I think the entrance has a particular tone, and the exit has a partic- has a very different particular tone. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it kind of takes you uh, by surprise because he's going with that girl. I forget her name, um, or if they even give her a name in the movie. The dark haired girl who the hitchhiker. Yeah. Um, her character's name is Stand By. Uh, pussycat. Oh, right. Pussycat. Right. Um, but you know, he's kind of got a few scenes where he sees her on the street or whatever mm-hmm. leading up to that scene. And they're, I mean, I guess I would just call them sort of flirtatious, they're flirting, yeah. which is like a little weird cause she's so much younger than him. But, right. but also, uh, I don't know. They're, they're certainly, they don't feel dark, right? No. Um, maybe inappropriate, but, uh, but certainly not like, uh, like, dark in a violent way. Right. And then, and then she, you know, he, he finally does offer her a ride somewhere. And the whole time it seems like, uh, Oh, this is just kind of, uh, you know, this is kind of like a fun little, little excursion he's going on with this girl. Right. Um, but then once he gets to the ranch, it's like, you know, record scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like a creepy, weird place right. that, that that she's taken him to. Well, and that gets back to my earlier point about innocence, right? Is like she's just mm-hmm. a fun kid who gets pulled into this totally strange yeah. cult and probably doesn't even quite grasp how deeply odd and sort of nefarious the entire endeavor is, right? And I think... You know, Maybe, yeah. he has that same read on her. He's like, oh, you're just sort of like this sweet, odd, fun kid. Mm-hmm. And then when she sort of gets among all of her other cult member friends and she kind of changes quite a bit, yeah. right? Um, I think he realizes in that moment like, uh, oh, this is, you know, you're not the innocent kid yeah. that I sort of presumed you were. Yeah, no, that scene was great. Um, I mean, so if we're talking about best parts of the movie... You already talked about the extended scene um, where they're filming. I forget the name of the show that he's that he's playing the mustachioed villain on, but that's a great scene. Yeah, it's a it's a western show. I can't believe I can't remember the name either. But, but then the I mean the ending for me is also pretty fantastic. Um, you know because that's where this feeling that we were talking about of what's going to happen to Sharon Tate sort of comes to a head and you're like, well, this is where I'm going to find out what he's right. going to do with this. Right. Um, and there is a lot of tension. I think it's, I think 
the Steiner Ranch is probably spawn the Spawn Ranch. Sorry, Spawn Ranch. Yeah. Um, scene has has the most kind of prolonged tension. Yes. But the ending definitely is is effective. Um, well, to me, because in the Spawn Ranch sequence, um, I think this sort of gets back to your earlier point about like Django and Inglorious Bastards. It's like those movies ha- have portrayals of things that never happened. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not you undoing something that did happen. It is portraying something that did not happen. Right. In this movie, it's obviously a reversal of that. Right. Right. Where it's like, um, there is okay. So like total, total. Let's totally spoil this all now. Right. We already for, gave this spoiler warning for those for those listeners who may not quite get this. This for all four of you. Um, you know, obviously, in real life, Sharon Tate is murdered by members of the Manson family, right. right? And so, as that sequence progresses, as that evening unfolds, right, and sort of the timestamps are played out on the screen, and you see Sharon Tate and various of her friends go to dinner and return home from dinner and go to bed, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you see that the various members of Tex and other members of the Manson family, like, you know, discussing in the car, like what they are going to do and how they are going to do it. And they're like gathering their knives and they're getting, and they're walking up the hill. You're sort of like, this is, this movie either is going to adhere to historical fact and is going to be gruesome and terrible. Right. Mm -hmm. Or it's not right. And that was where, that was my sort of Zen feeling. It's like, I know how I'm going to feel if they adhere to the historical record, it's going to be like gross. Right. I'm going to feel just utterly shattered. Right. Because I've spent the past two and a half hours really growing to like Sharon Tate. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I think I think by that point in the movie, it's also kind of obvious that it's not going to go that way. You think? Um, I guess. Well, put it this way. I feel like I have some sense of what Quentin Tarantino is trying to do. Right. In these movies. Yeah. And it's not show on screen an actual historical murder of an actress that he's spent an entire movie building up as quite uh, likable. Yeah. yeah, As an incredibly sweet, likable woman. That was sort of my take. on That's not what he's trying. I, 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 by the, by the end, I think I was like what I thought was going to happen. I mean, it's pretty close to what did happen. I thought they were going to, you know, that it was going to start to play out like it actually did in history and mm-hmm. Cliff was going to like save her or right. something. Right. Um, it's a little different from that because they just straight up go into Rick Dalton's house They go to the wrong instead. house, yeah. Yeah, because they, ch- they have a change of plans basically because Rick goes hell with his frozen margarita <laughs> and is like, get out of here. <laughs> right, that's like, that's like the counterfactual that, yeah. that changes history. Right. Rick being drunk with a pitcher of margarita or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but yeah, I feel like, sorry, I feel like I might've cut you short. Yeah, no, I think that was exact. That was in some ways I was like, look, if it does the thing that I'm kind of scared it will do, uh-huh. I'm going to kind of hate this. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, it's just, that's not, and I don't think it's going to do it. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so now it's like, okay, we know, I, I highly suspect that Cliff and Rick are going to be involved in this closing sequence in some way. Mm -hmm. And now it's just a matter of how are they going to be involved? Right. And my, my actual bigger fear was I was like, they are going to get killed. Right. Like, so that 
Sharon Tate can survive, right? Sure, yeah. That, that I legitimately plausible. thought that one of them was going to die in that mm-hmm. last sequence, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was where that was really where most of the tension resided for me by the end was just like, oh, not Cliff, <laughs> right? Right, because especially because it's like the movie set him up as invulnerable, but then right. in that last scene, he's smoking an acid laced cigarette, and you're right. like. Cliff, you're making yourself vulnerable. <laughs> who, who knew that an acid-dipped cigarette was his weakness? Yeah. Right. Um, I actually learned later that um, uh, apparently, you might have already known this, apparently the members of the Manson family, they were like on acid at the time. Okay. Uh, that yeah, I did know that, yes. So, um, so I, I didn't realize that, but that seems like definitely a an intentional thing of, of oh, it's kind of like, you know, taking like, the puzzle pieces of actual history and just shuffling them around a little bit. And it's like someone is on acid in this moment. Right. And in fact, it is the person who kills people. Yep. But it's more in self-defense in this case. Yep. Although the, the the manner of killing in in some cases is a little bit over the top. Yeah. Uh, But that certainly seems very much a wish fulfillment on Quentin Tarantino's part. Yeah. Um, It's under, it's like totally understandable. It's like in the same way in Inglorious Bastards, they, they basically like riddle Hitler with bullets, right? Right. Um, just like to a comical degree because it's it's him sort of filming a thing that he wanted to see, right? Yep. I think this is very much the same thing of just like, let's just see, let's just see these members of the Manson family get killed in the most horrible, uh, you know, drawn out ways by our heroes because that's what I want to see. I want to see right. them get what I feel like they actually deserved pretty much. Right. 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 Yeah. And it, that, and because to my, to the point I made earlier, because I'd seen Inglorious Bastards and I'd seen Django Unchained, I was like, seems like it's a strong possibility that this yeah, movie could go this way. That's basically what I was thinking too. Yeah. I think I told you um, that uh, watching it with Catherine, I think it was basically at a certain point when it became clear that Margot Robbie was playing Sharon Tate. Yeah. Um, Catherine was like, why did I come to see this movie with you? Right. Um, and I was like, oh, man, I'm sorry. I didn't really. Because I honestly, going into the movie, I guess I might have at one point known that it was about her. Yeah. Um, but I kind of forgot. Like, I, I, yeah. in my mind, it was just the Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt thing. Yeah. Um, who are not real people. Um, but so then I think I told you. That I, at fir- at first when she was like, oh no, this is going to be terrible. You know, this was really early in the movie, right? Um, and we're both sitting there, still watching, and uh, and I'm like, oh man, it is going to be terrible. But then, maybe 20, 30 minutes later, it just kind of dawns on me right. that you know, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and I just leaned over and I was like, I think she's going to be okay. Right. I'll explain later. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I don't think they're going to kill her. That would be just such a weird way to conclude the movie, right? Um, yeah, totally. But, but, and this brings me back to sort of the misgivings I used to have about Tarantino that I've kind of gotten over whether or not I should have, um, which, which were all around him doing this revisionist history thing, you know, doing this wish fulfillment thing. I think with Inglorious Bastards in particular, I was just really turned off by the idea that, it's going to be about these people who like kill Nazis and like, they're going to kill Hitler at the end. Right. Because, you know, it's, I I guess, I guess at the time I just felt 
that it was, you know, basically disrespectful to, to what actually happened. I mean, and that was my wife's reaction. Yeah. Right. Like she strongly felt that way about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think the fact that he's now done it multiple times. Yeah. Makes me more okay with it because, um, I think with Inglorious Bastards, I guess that came out after Django Unchained, right? No. Before. Oh, okay. It came before. So it was like the first time he did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just felt sort of like in poor taste and disrespectful. Um, but then after Django Unchained and now after this one, I, I sort of weirdly see it differently um, where especially, you know, I'll be curious to see what his 10th movie consists of. Maybe he'll only have done it three times total. Right. But um, where it's like he's choosing with his work to present these kind of historical alternatives, right? right? That just, it's like obviously not fixing anything in real life or helping anybody, but it's sort of expressing just what he wishes, you know? In the same way, uh, you know the movie, uh, what was the movie? Atonement. Yeah. You see that movie? I've never actually seen it. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, then I can't really draw a parallel without spoiling it. Okay. But, um, well, I mean, it is like what a 20 year old movie or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, I, uh, I, I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of more, uh, I find it oddly touching. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the idea that it's like, um, like a, like an artist who's, who's, uh, let's say deeply sad about something that happened right. and wishes they could help those people, wishes they could change it, wishes they could do something about it. And there's just nothing they can do right? to make a work of art that just expresses what they kind of wish could have happened. Right. To me feels like, um, this sort of, uh, uh, like heartbreaking, but beautiful, like sort of feeble attempt to, right. to help in some way. Right. You know, it's like, it's like if you know someone's, um, needs help and there's literally nothing you can do, you can literally do nothing or you can do something knowing that it's not going to help anyway, but it just like, you can't not do something. Right. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of how I view it now. And that of, was of those three movies. Like, like, of course he can't go back and fix them. Right. But he's so upset that things happened that way. Or, or just not that he personally, but like there is, it is so sad yeah. that things happened the it way they is did. It is upsetting. That this right. is, that this is a knowingly futile effort. Right. Um, but an effort nonetheless. But in some way, I, you know, I thought about this with Inglorious Bastards. It was like, no, everybody knows that that's not the way World War II ended. Mm-hmm. Right. That, um, but I think in some ways that to, to sort of reinforce your point, that movie is not about trying to pretend like that didn't happen. Like we all know what actually happened and we're all saddened and outraged by the, you know, tragic loss of life and, you know, um, genocide of world war two, but in the movie theater, right. Mm-hmm. We can all have a cathartic moment where we are alive and Hitler is dead. And despite everything that we've lost, right, we still win, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because we get to write history 
And we get to be the ones who remember those who are gone with fondness and affection and get to dance on the graves of people who are evil. Right. And I feel like that to me was the story of that film was sort of like in this movie theater, we get to be the winners. Right. Well, I think to that point, um, it seems very intentional and very, very clearly a choice that the Manson family in this movie is depicted as basically totally incompetent. Right. Mm -hmm. They're depicted as complete losers. Right. Um, which just just kind of to build off that idea that you're saying that, you know, I think in terms of like the, the tense, um, the, the suspense and some of the filmmaking qualities, it's almost like it would have maybe been a better choice to make them a little bit more uh, scary. Mm-hmm. But, but I view that as, again, Tarantino sort of refusing to give them any sort of respect. Right. It's like you were complete losers who I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have these characters just clean the floor with you. Right. Because, and, and, and just give you these horrible deaths because that's what you deserve. And also like, you're not, you don't even deserve the dignity of having been like fleshed out as like uh, real of, characters yeah, or right. of, of being terrifying villains. You should right. just be these laughable, just jokes clowns. Right. You know? Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's what you're saying again. Like I can totally understand people having, um, you know, having, having mixed feelings or possibly just straight up not liking what he's doing or finding it offensive even. Right. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I think it's, a uh, it's it's a really nebulous kind of area for me, right? But I but I think it's yeah, like I said, I think now that he's done it multiple times, I sort of see it more as, um, as kind of something he's doing artistically that I that I appreciate now. Right. It's a very um, it's a very lonely corner he's on. You know what I mean? Like I don't feel like other filmmakers are even remotely contemplating this way of using filmmaking you no it's I mean? it's it's definitely a dangerous zone i mean if if these were like his first few movies right he probably would not have gotten away with it right um hard to say but, but um but i feel like without, i mean they're so well made still without movies like inglorious bastards and who you know time will tell if this is actually a, a good thing or a bad thing but like i don't feel like you would get a movie like the upcoming jojo rabbit mm. right where it's like, let's just out and out make fun of Hitler for an hour and a half, right? Like he's a like he's the lead in a comedy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's some, I mean, and who knows if that movie will actually bring time for Hitler? Sure, that, that's true. That's fair. <laughs> uh, but that was like a parody inside. That was supposed to be yeah. inherent, like knowingly awful mm-hmm. inside of that show, right? Inside of the producers, right? And so, um, at any rate, like. It's entirely bold to do. I to, to your point, I totally understand if people hate it, but I yeah. do. But I do not. Yeah, yeah. I think one more thing to sort of close out that that bit about wanting to sort of give us a feeling in the theater. I think um, th- this was also in his something he said in his interview on uh, the director's cut, which is that this movie's you know relatively been relatively successful it's talked about a lot a lot of articles written about it and stuff and 
And he said, you know, um, Sharon Tate, in in any time you would ever read about her or any time she was ever discussed, it was as the victim right. in this horrible thing that happened. And that was basically her claim to fame was right. having been murdered. Right? right. And that hopefully, you know, uh, seeing her portrayed by Margot Robbie, seeing her in an actual movie she was in. Right. Right. In this movie and, and watching Margot Robbie watch her yeah. and just sort of be in love with the performance. Right. It, it, um, he, he was, he was saying, you know, I, I just hope that, uh, I think that maybe some people will think of Sharon Tate a little differently. Now they'll think of her as an actress who, right. you know, who could have had a really wonderful career and, and it's really sad that it was cut short, but, but they'll think of her in terms of what she did. Right. And what she could have been. Not what and was not, done to her. Yeah, right. exactly. And um and that I think is a great thing. Yeah. Uh I think I think it's I think it's really sweet that he showed, you know, that this movie shows that, that scene basically where Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate goes to kind of watch goes herself. Goes to see the wrecking. And crew. then she's actually but but then Margot Robbie's actually watching Sharon Tate. Yes. Um the I think I I thought that was was really sweet. And I think looking back at was even more totally charming scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that was the best part of the movie. What about, or any other scenes you want to highlight? So we... many. I mean, like when DiCaprio is filming Lancer, that's like mm. a really enjoyable bit. Right. I talked about that earlier. Right. Yeah. But just from him, um, the walking, scene right after that too, <laughs> just everything, just walking onto the set with a little bit of a hangover. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's got congestion problems and his face is puffy and he's, dunking his face in ice uh-huh. when they're talking about his hair, when they're talking about his, you know, his mustache, when they're talk, when, um, he's filming the part and he can't remember his lines. Mm-hmm. Right. Just the, the way they film the entire, uh, like onset them shooting the sequence is quite wonderful. And then like when he forgets his lines, it's like record scratch kind of moment. And yep. it's, and then him going back to his trailer is one of the best scenes in the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, and just him just flipping out at just himself, berating himself in the mirror, and then with him saying he's like, "I'm gonna kill myself, <laughs> right? If he's I like, if you don't get these lines right, I'm gonna like blow gonna your blow head your off, like all over your swimming pool or yeah. something like that, right? <laughs> um, just such, and then his scene with um, with Julia Butters, the Trudy character, um, the young girl, oh, right? Yeah, like yeah, on yeah. when they're both in their chairs uh-huh. and he's recounting. The, very funny. the story in his novel that he's reading about a Bronco buster, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Just uh-huh. like everything about that whole sequence is just so enjoyable. The, um, and I'm going to skip now to, like to other scenes that I liked quite a bit, like the Bruce Lee sequence. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, there's just, it, there's just so many good scenes in this movie. That Did we talk about that scene and how people were upset by it? We, we've talked not on this podcast, but yes, we've talked okay. about it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think I think uh, just to touch on that real quick, where I where I landed on that for me personally is that I came across um, you know some opinions on the internet that that was disrespectful to Bruce Lee or that yep. it was uh, you know just like totally unrealistic um, and. The two things I read about it from sort of Quentin Tarantino's perspective of defending that scene were one, I guess, I guess there's a biography of Bruce Lee that I think his ex-wife wrote or something. And, yeah. he, and, and, and there's plenty of, I'm sure other 
interviews and stuff with people who worked with him. He was apparently uh, known to be like pretty full of himself. Right. Not not in a way that necessarily made him unlikable, but basically that he, Extremely he, he would yeah. yeah that he would give speeches and stuff like in that scene. Right. That uh, that that was very consistent with the kind of personality he had. Right. Um, not to say he wasn't a lovely person. I think people had people seemed to really love him, but like he was very cocky. Right. Um, that is true. And then the other thing was, you know, is it really realistic that this stunt man could have could have beaten Bruce Lee in a fight? Right. And his response to that was, it's like asking, could you know, who would win in a fight between Bruce Lee and Dracula? You know, it's right. it's a made up character. Right. You know, uh, Cliff Booth, who's a character I made up, could beat up Bruce Lee. Right. Right. That's like, could Brad Pitt beat up Bruce Lee? No. Right. Um. But, you know, this character that I made up, he could. He was uh, he had a whole backstory for him, like his military background and stuff. Right. And so, I mean, for me, that kind of that kind of resolved it for me. Right. Like, I was like, I get that people really like Bruce Lee and it felt like they were kind of making fun of him a little bit. But this was apparently how he was. And the fact that he got in this fight with this guy was his way of showing just how, you know, right. capable Cliff is as a fighter and as just, you know. Yeah. There's many scenes like that in the movie where it's just like Cliff is pretty unstoppable. I mean, if the only I don't know, there's something overly simplistic about people saying like to say that Bruce Lee could have lost in a fight is to disrespect Bruce Lee. I was like, are you saying that his only value is in his ability to beat up other people? Right. I I don't know. I think yeah, it's just it's just that if you're gonna, I think what it is is probably. A lot of people felt if you're gonna have Bruce Lee in the movie, he should be, he should kind of be, you know, given the reverence of of being this, you know, unbeatable. Because he like because he deserves that level of respect or something to that effect. I, I suppose, but then I mean, like we saw Kill Bill one and two, and Uma Thurman was in a Bruce Lee jumpsuit for like five hours. You know what I mean? Like he quite obviously likes Bruce Lee. Yeah, well, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think the question is whether Tarantino likes Bruce Lee. I'm just doing my best to channel the people who are. Yeah, but I don't feel like either of us on this podcast is particularly upset about the Bruce Lee portrayal. No, no. I mean, put it this way: I think what might have been nice and might have dodged a lot of the backlash was if there were just a scene in addition to that scene yeah. that showed Bruce Lee being like a total badass. Well, they show him training Sharon Tate. Yeah, well, that's him being a good guy. A nice guy. That's him right. seeming to be a, like a supportive coworker. Right. Um, but, you know, if they had just had some scene where, like, like maybe if they had a scene where, like, uh, for example, somebody, some, like, somebody's stirring up some trouble on set and Bruce Lee has to, like, put him in their place. Sure. And he just, and he just beats the crap out of somebody or, or just uses really advanced martial arts to, like, subdue somebody. Right. Then it would have been like, okay, there's a scene that establishes Bruce Lee is an actual badass. Right. Because you know what I think it is, is some people might have been upset that since there were no scenes that showed that he was actually, like, really capable. Right. You could come away from that scene make, thinking that it sort of made it look like Bruce Lee was a fraud. Right. Right. That he that he was all talk, that he was sure. all bark and no bite. Um, I think I think from Tarantino's perspective, he's like, no, I'm assuming everybody treats it as a given that Bruce Lee is an amazing martial artist. Right. 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 This is all about showing how effective Cliff is. Right. Anyway, I think that I think it was sort of in that sort of ambiguous area yeah. where 
We're like, are they? Is it? Is this showing that Bruce Lee is is a is a like a a, a sham, or is it showing that Cliff is yeah know, very much the real deal? It's, I think it's the latter. But anyway, we've talked enough about the Bruce Lee scene, um, and we did already talk about the ending. But I would just like to say that specifically in the ending. When, when Rick gets out of the pool yeah. and gets his flamethrower, yeah, I, I, I was very happy. <laughs> I was laughing very. Hard. Yeah, I was exactly. I was laughing quite a lot. Uh, it just was so perfect, right? You know, it was like that was set up earlier mm-hmm. in the movie, uh, and it was such a great payoff, right? And the, even it, it like that flamethrower, really, uh, it. It pays. It pays off in multiple places because, like, even just the, you know, the little dialogue after that, where the guy's asking about him, yeah, asking about what happened to them, this one and that one, and he's like, "Yeah, torched the one myself, (laughs) burned her to a crisp." (laughs) And he's like, "He's like, how?" He's like, "I got a flamethrower in the shed." (laughs) Yeah, because because it's also like Rick has never. You know, Cliff is built up throughout the movie as as being you know somebody who could clearly handle himself. Handle himself, right? Rick's not; he's just an actor. You right. know, there's not. So in that final scene, you're like, well, what what's going to happen if they get to Rick? He's like right. going to be defenseless, right? And so just the flamethrower well, is just played, the perfect. Thing. I mean, it's played for pure comedy. Yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean. Like the whole sequence in the in the house with Cliff and and the three. Manson family members mm-hmm. is played pretty gruesomely, right? Like, well, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of tension. Initially. I mean, I think in throughout, right? Like, um, I mean, and even you know when the the fight is fully on, right mm-hmm. after he's thrown a can of dog food, yeah, in somebody's in face, face, yeah, right. Like, there's still like he gets stabbed, right? Yeah. Like, and I actually thought he was gonna like I was like she's gonna kill him, he's gonna die in this sequence, mm-hmm. like right in that moment, right before you realize that she's only stabbed him in the hip. Right. Yeah. Um, and then it's like particularly gruesome, but it's played, um, you know, in a particular way that to me was still a little bit tense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then by when she, when one of the fancy family members like runs through a glass door and into mm-hmm. the pool, then right. it just becomes pure slapstick. It, just his reaction, like as he's listening to his lines on his tape recorder, yeah. just yeah. like DiCaprio is when he wants to be just like one of the funniest actors on the planet, yeah, right? Yeah. Like I, I'm thinking to the scene in Wolf of Wall Street where he's on Quaaludes and driving like a Porsche, uh-huh. right? And just like, just his physical comedy is so good, good. right? Yeah. Um, so that went just his facial reaction, his sort of bumbling, like sort of doggy paddling to get out of the pool. <laughs> right. And then like his nervous sort of half run, half walk to like the shed to get the flamethrower. Uh-huh. Right. Like, and cause you know that that's what he's going to do. You know? Like, oh, I totally didn't know oh, until I, he came out with it. Right. Um, and that's so, when I was just like, this is amazing. He's just such a funny actor. I mean, like. He's got such funny sequences in this movie, whether it's like um, the ice bowl in the trailer, right? Whether it is hit, the speech he gives to himself 
um, after he blows it's, his lines. Yeah, he's actually he's, quite funny throughout. Where he's recite, where he's learning his lines for Lancer, yeah. and he's making like this giant container of whiskey sour mix, right? Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> you know, like just so relentlessly funny in this movie, right? Including through the end sequence of the or his little breakdown after the meet with Al Pacino, right? Right. In the yes. It just like he's just a relentlessly funny character yeah. in this movie, and it's like. People don't think of DiCaprio like he's a comedy actor, and maybe it's just he's just a good actor, period, right? But it's like, man, when he wants to be, he can be so funny. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that ending sequence, I mean, certainly will go will go down as one of the most memorable sequences, you know, yeah, in the Tarantino's per- portfolio. Well, for sure, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I think the, I think the face smashing is a little over the top. But right. that's kind of a thing he does. Like it reminds me right. of, um, it reminds me of in Kill Bill, two. I think it is uh-huh. when she steps on the eyeball after you, having plucked it out. Of yeah, when she takes Darryl the eyeball head, out, yeah. tosses it to the floor and smashes it with her bare foot. Yeah, and it's just so gross. <laughs> but you're, but but you know, it's like a, it's like so over the top that it becomes. Sort of, I don't know, funny. It's cartoonish, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's sort of like the the face smashing was like that to me, where it's initially it's like so disturbing. You're like, oh my gosh, like this is so like brutal, right? But then he's just smashing her like into every surface in the entire house to the right. point where it's it's just over the top, right? Again, it's very gross. I mean, there was something about that sequence that felt like Tarantino, you know, to the me's of the world, where I was like, I wanted like more of a Tarantino movie earlier, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's kind of sleepier and more contemplative than I wanted it to be. Right. The ending to me felt like him saying, like, is this what you wanted? <laughs> right. Like, is, is this the kind of like uh, I don't know. outcome yeah. you wanted? I, I feel like it's what he wanted. Maybe. That, that's that's how the ending really felt to me. Yeah. Um, OK. Well, uh, so we've touched on all the stuff, um, all the highlights. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about a lot of scenes, but also like about. Leo DiCaprio's performance, Brad Pitt's performance, yeah. um, Margot Robbie. I think just the performances were just all exceptionally good. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly of the main characters, main actors. Yeah. Um, I was less enamored with some of the secondary or tertiary characters oh, really? than maybe a lot of the, I feel like the popular sentiment was. Like when people were like, Luke Perry is amazing in this movie. I'm like, sure. I mean, he was fine. He was only in it for three minutes. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I liked I liked them all. It's fine, right? Like, <laughs> but I, I wasn't like, wow, like so good. I was like, yeah, good, fine. Tim- yeah, Timothy yeah, yeah. Oliphant, fine, right? Like, yeah, and I like Timothy Oliphant like a lot, right? Like, Damian Lewis, fine. Bruce Dern, fine. Dakota Fanning, fine. You know, like, uh, yeah, yeah, I would. Agree. But I mean, they're just all these. These all are performances that that last for you know a total of five minutes of screen time maybe right so yeah i quite liked the the eight-year-old yeah julia butters like i just it was such an odd character speaking like she's a you know a 40 year old actor right yeah i mean with the pretension of a child right i think uh i would i would give most of the credit there to the writing yeah that's um, fair uh but that was very funny yes so, if that's all we have to say on highlights, I think uh, we gotta we gotta fix the movie, and then we'll be, then we'll be almost done. Yep. How how would you fix this movie? 
I don't have anything. I, I think my immediate you wouldn't reaction, shorten it or anything. I I don't think so because that was put it this way when I walked out of the movie and I was like that wasn't sort of the crackerjack Tarantino kind of movie that I was hoping for. Right, I was immediately thinking about I would cut the Lancer scene down, mm. right, and then like cut to a week later. It's like the Lancer scene was one of the best parts in the movie. <laughs> yeah, like never cut that, never cut that. Yeah, right? and then like I wouldn't cut their trip to Italy at all. Right, I liked that whole sequence when we're getting like a little bit of a primer on how spaghetti oh, right. westerns work. Right. right, I wouldn't cut you know the dog food sequence. Right, like there's just because they're all these perfect little moments, and that's like what this movie's about. It's not about the plot. It's not about this. Isn't a Breaking Bad episode, you know what I mean? This isn't just like how does this perfectly clockwork universe like all line up, right? It's just about these moments, and so why would you cut them? Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there's anything I would do to fix the movie. Although the thing you just said reminded me of something I wanted to come back to real quick, and I'll just state it, and then we don't have to really explore it because uh, we've got we, this is a really long episode. Um, but uh, that that segment of him going to Italy, you know, that sort of like little chapter in his career, right? That gets summarized relatively quickly. Yeah, uh, it ends, you know, with them them sort of heading back to America and him being like, "So I'm gonna have to let you go. I can't really afford you anymore." Yep, or whatever. Um, to me, you know, of course, like I said, Cliff is this just sort of perfect, almost imaginary friend level, right? You know, buddy who, of course, in that scene is just going to be like, oh, okay, it's cool. I'll figure right. something out, right? right? But I feel like until that scene, it could have been like, uh, his character could have been like where he was unfailingly loyal to Rick, you know, to Rick, maybe partially because Rick was kind of supporting him Right, and, and he was kind of like the only person who would work with him, right? Because because they establish in the movie he's a little bit of a pariah, yeah. Um, because everybody thinks he killed his wife, which right. maybe he did or maybe he didn't, right? Which is funny, something that we didn't even talk about, right? Um, but I thought I thought that a different way it could have gone at that moment was that Cliff could have like not been cool with that at all, sure, right? Um. Which would have been an interesting... I almost half expected that to be like a huge part of point of drama, like right for that to be a thing that causes yeah some final climax in the movie. But I feel like but, that would have been out of character, right? Because I think that just demonstrates that they are legitimately friends. Yeah, right? but but I guess what I'm saying is, until that point in the movie, it was also true that Cliff was you know had a stable job the whole time sure. thanks to Rick. Right. So so I don't know. It's the sort of thing where like you think you know a person. You know like celebrities who have big posses or whatever entourages, entourages and right. then and then whatever happens, you know, it's it's like riches back to rags for whatever reason. Uh it's like pretty common that that posse kind of dwindles, right? Yeah. And people who who had seemed like great friends just kind of fall by the wayside because it turns out they were just there because you were providing for them or whatever. Right. right? Um, but anyway, that was not what the movie was about. Cliff is in fact a perfect friend. And so <laughs> when given the news of, you know, I can't actually pay you anymore, he's just like, I'm sure I'll land on my feet. You know, it'll be fine. Um, okay. So neither of us would really do anything to fix the movie, which is really, 
saying something because this movie's like almost three hours long. Yeah. But yeah, looking I mean, back, if, I'm like, it, I, I'm I did fine only, with it being that long. Yeah, I did only see it the one time. So if yeah, I were if, if I were nitpicking, I'm sure I could find something. But frankly, less driving, maybe, <laughs> maybe less feet, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe. But it's also like at the same time, it does. Pretty. Fine I feel like part of the point of it was that yeah. it was kind of a, just a meandering kind of movie for a lot of it. I actually think, you know, this is actually the ex- exact opposite of that. I would. I would maybe have, uh, I would have been happy to have more scenes with Sharon Tate. Sure. She, she's, yeah. she's gotta be like less than a, easily less than a third of the screen time. Right. It's easily, it's, it's more like 10% maybe. I yeah. Like. And I mean, in my head, I'm like, she's probably on screen for tw- 25 minutes. Yeah. It's, I mean, right? I think, I think her, I think her scenes, kind of ramp up as the movie goes on. Maybe. Whereas like in the final hour of the movie, she's in a good deal of it, but, right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think she could have been a, a little bit of a bigger character. Right. But since I wouldn't really take away any of the other stuff, I guess I'm just saying just add more. That you could have made the movie even more than three Make hours. Make it a long. three hour movie. Yeah. please. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, probably it's fine the way it is. So would you, uh, should we beam this movie up to space? Yeah. Yeah? I mean, we haven't seen all the movies yet this year, so, you know, it's early. We don't wait to decide. We decide when we see them. I mean, put it this way. The first half of this year was kind of trash. (laughs) That's true. So, I mean, this We owe that astronaut Our poor astronaut is waiting. This is is far better than most of the movies that have come out this year, so... Beam it up. Let's do it. Beam it up. All right. Beamed. And with that, we are finished. So, uh... That was that was another successful episode of Space Flicks. Once upon a time in Hollywood. I'm Adam. I'm Dan. <laughs> Thanks for listening.